0: Next August, Beijing, China will host the Summer Olympic Games. And if the Beijing Games are like past Olympics, the most popular ticket by far will be the opening ceremonies. There is always a buzz surrounding the opening of the Games. It's a new stadium. There's this pageantry in the air. There are dignitaries present. It's the Olympic Oath. It's the high hopes of the athletes. And of course, it's the lighting of the flame. And yet the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games pale in comparison to the opening ceremonies for Solomon's temple. Solomon, indeed, had a new stadium, this glorious temple that he had built. He had just finished the final walkthrough through the building. There was the pageantry of a dedication And the dignitaries, oh my, dignitaries showed up for sure. As a matter of fact, God comes to this open house. Solomon prays, he offers sacrifices, and there's even the lighting of the flame. For the next 370 years, Temple of Solomon will serve as the centerpiece of the Hebrews' national life. The temple will be the holiest spot on the earth. This day, the day of the opening of the temple, was probably the most glorious day in Solomon's reign. It may well have been the most glorious day in the history of Israel. Chapter 8 begins when Solomon brings the most important treasure into the temple, the very throne of God on earth, the Ark of the Covenant. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief Fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Ethanim is also the month of Tishri, it's our September, October. And it was the holiest month of the year for the Jews. You see, this was the one month that held three Jewish feasts. There was, first of all, the Feast of Trumpets, or the Hebrews call it Rosh Hashanah. Then there was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And then in that same month was Sukkoth, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, according to chapter 6, verse 38 of 1 Kings, the temple wasn't finished until the eighth month. Solomon waited 11 months after the building had been completed to hold the dedication. One commentator, Bishop Usher, suggests that Solomon waited until the next year because it was a year of jubilee. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites, brought them up. And, of course, the law had specific instructions for transporting the holy furnishings. And, of course, not the least of which of those instructions was that the movers had to be Levites. It's obvious here that Solomon is moving these temple treasures by the book. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen, that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. It was a giant barbecue. Beef abounded. Had some good beef last night at Sonny's on the way back from the hockey rink, didn't we, Kat? Some good barbecue beef at Sonny's. Here, you talk about beef. They slaughtered animals. They couldn't even number the total of the Offerings. Solomon went out of his way to show God just how much he loved him. Then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the end of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Now notice verse 9. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. You remember from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, we're told that at one time the ark contained... The golden pot that had the manna, a sample of the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, all of a sudden, by the time it gets brought into the temple, somewhere the jar of manna has been lost. Somewhere along the line, the rod of Aaron has been lost. All that's left inside the ark by this point in the days of Solomon was the two tablets of the covenant. Where they were lost along the way, how they were taken out of the ark, nobody knows. But look what appears in their place. Hey, why do you need a rod when you've got God? Because all of a sudden the Lord shows up. Verse 10. And it came to pass when the priest came up out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering before because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This cloud was the glory cloud. It was God's glory, his manifested glory, or what the Hebrews called the Shekinah. It was the radiant shining. It was the fallout of God's presence on display in a physical way for all to see. This is the cloud that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. This is the cloud from which God spoke to Moses. This is the cloud that caused Mount Sinai to shake. This is the cloud that filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. This is the cloud that later Ezekiel will see departing from the temple. This is the cloud that overshadowed a virgin named Mary. This is a cloud that encompassed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is a cloud that received Jesus up into heaven. And when he returns to this earth, you know how he'll come? In the clouds. The Shekinah glory is integral to God's story and to his plan for the ages. And the glory was so intense that day that the priests couldn't continue their work. The brilliance, the heaviness The enormity of God's presence forced all human activity to cease in its wake. Wow, what it must have been like. My friend David Guzik, he makes this comment. The intense sense of the presence of our holy God is not a warm and fuzzy feeling. Men like Peter, Isaiah, and John felt stricken in the presence of God. They sense the difference between their sinfulness and his holiness. When you sense the glory of God, it brings you to your knees. It humbles a proud person. God's glory drives out all vestiges of human ego. The priests could no longer carry on their activities because of the heaviness of God's glory in the house. Then Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud, I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. Well, verse 14 records Solomon's dedication speech. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. There I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them. Out of the land of Egypt. In verse 22, Solomon prays. And notice his prayer is about four times longer than his speech. He knows that God didn't come to hear him talk. He humbles himself and he prays. And what a prayer it is. Solomon praises God for his faithfulness. He begins, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, And spread out his hands toward heaven. You know, you see this over and over in the Old Testament. Today, when we pray, we bow our heads and we close our eyes. But the Hebrews, they were inclined to stretch out their hands when they prayed. And I think there's a reason for that posture. In the Old Testament, God was outside of the believer, He was up there in the heavens, so to speak. They were stretching out their hands for God, whereas in the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus, God now dwells inside the believer, down here in our hearts, so to speak. And so it's only natural that we close our eyes and that we look inward. Well, Solomon lifts his hands and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And I love verse 27 it proves that Solomon had not lost his perspective. The king had just spent about $30 billion, you remember from last week, in seven and a half years of his life building a temple. But he's known all along that God will never fit in a house made with human hands. He says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. From the earth to the sun, there are 93 million miles separating the earth from the sun. 93 million miles. Imagine that distance equaling the thickness of a piece of paper. You with me? 93 million miles equals the thickness of a sheet of paper. The nearest star to our solar system is 4.5 light-years away. Now, keeping with our analogy, that's a stack of paper 71 feet high. The diameter is 100,000 light-years, or a stack of paper 310 miles high. And to the edge of the known universe, oh, 12 billion light years, give or take. That's a stack of paper, 31 million miles high. Now, if you read Isaiah 40, verse 12, this is what it says. Who has measured heaven with a span? You know what a span is, don't you? It was the distance between the king's thumb and his little finger. That was a span right there. So he says, who has measured heaven with a span? The distance from one side of the universe to the other, 10 million light years, a stack of paper, as we said, 31 million miles high. That's the distance between God's thumb and his forefinger. It only takes a span in God's measurement to measure the heavens. This means that at least 31 million miles lie between God's thumb and his forefinger. That's a pretty big hand. You know what? That's big enough to handle your life, don't you think? That's big enough to even hold your problems, don't you think? Solomon knows that this God, this great and awesome and mighty God that he serves isn't going to fit in a 90-foot by 30-foot building. And when are we going to learn? that God does not fit in our box. That God is boundless. That God doesn't fit into temples made by men, nor does he confine himself to man-made systems or formulas or traditions. Just about the time you think you've got God all figured out, (laughs) bang, God blows out the side of the box. God is beyond our ability to hem in, or figure out or tuck away, you got to let God be God. I love the old expression, you know, God is God. He's not applying for the job. Sometimes we forget that. We need to trust God to be God, not try to tie him in a straitjacket. Solomon didn't try to put God in a box or even confine God to a temple, but he asked God to make this temple his point of contact, a meeting place, if you will where his mercy and man's needs can touch and can meet. Verse 28, he says, "'Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, "'and listen to the cry and the prayer "'which your servant is praying before you today, "'that your eyes may be opened toward this temple "'night and day, toward the place of which you said, "'My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer "'which your servant makes toward this place, "'and may you hear the supplication,' of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And let me summarize for you the next few verses. Solomon proposes all kinds of scenarios that his people Israel will face when the people sin, when they're defeated by an enemy, when there's a drought, or when there's a famine, or when there's a pestilence. Or when there's a plague of locusts, Solomon says in verse 38, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to your fathers. In other words, God, be a merciful God. Be a God who hears and answers our prayers when we pray to you with a repentant heart. Verse 41. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel but has come from a far country for your namesake for they will hear of your great name And your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as you do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. And Solomon sees here the temple as a part of old Testament evangelism. In other words, he says that the Gentiles who live in these foreign lands, they're going to hear of this temple, and they're going to know of your glory, and they're going to come to this temple, Father, to seek your face, to know your ways. And so this temple is going to be a part of God's evangelism for the Gentiles, bringing the world to himself throughout the generations that will follow. Verse 44, when your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, And when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, and notice what he says, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive. And years later, a Jew named Daniel will be in a faraway land called Babylon. The temple will be in ruins back in Jerusalem. It will have been razed and wrecked by the Babylonians. Daniel and his friends will have been taken captive back to Babylon. And Daniel will remember this passage of Scripture that Solomon prayed. God, hear them when they're in displaced lands. Hear them when they pray toward this temple. Hear them in heaven and and act on their behalf. God will hear Daniel's prayer. And Daniel will remember this passage. And what he will do is he'll open his window toward Jerusalem. And he, in obedience to Solomon's prayer, will pray three times a day a prayer of repentance to the Lord and pray toward this temple in Jerusalem. And you remember God will, he did hear Daniel's prayer. And he raised up another king named Cyrus who allowed the Jews to return. Daniel knew this passage of scripture. He says, when you're in a foreign land, pray saying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication. And maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace." that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord our God. God chose Israel to be his special people, and he will never, ever Abandon Israel. God's plans and his purposes for Israel are eternal. Verse 54. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Now remember verse 22. Solomon began his prayer where? standing before the Lord with his arms outstretched to the Lord. But by the time he ends his prayer, he's on his knees. The more time you spend before the Almighty God, the humbler you will become. God always drives us to our knees. In verse 54, paints a beautiful picture. The world's mightiest, the world's wisest man is on his knees before an all-wise and almighty God. Then he stood. And he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. Not one word that God has spoken has ever failed. Do you believe that? Let me tell you, God's promises are sure. They can be trusted. When God makes a promise, you can take it to heart. You can personalize that promise. You can take it to the bank and build your life on the promises of God. Now, God has made us many precious promises, but have we taken them to heart? Are we building our lives on the promises of God? We should be. I like what C.H. Spurgeon once said. He said, God sent the promise on purpose to be used. If I see a Bank of England note, it is a promise for a certain amount of money, and I take it and use it. But, oh, I, my friend, do try and use God's promises, for nothing pleases God better than to see his promises put into circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as you have said, and let me tell you that it glorifies God. To use his promises. Are you putting God's promises in circulation? You should be. Verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us. There's a promise right there to put into practice. He won't leave us or forsake us. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. And after Solomon ends his prayer, something happens. The flame gets lighted. Let me read to you a passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that sort of correlates with our passage here in 1 Kings. This is what happens. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. God personally lights the flame. He sends fire down from heaven on the sacrifice and lights the new altar. He lights it himself with fire from heaven. What an amazing sight that was. Verse 62 Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord, and Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings which he offered to the Lord. This is what he offered. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Not bad. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. It was the largest single day slaughter of blood in the history of the temple. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. That's more barbecue than we serve at our pastor's conference every year. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings and grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. The altar's first day in operation, and it's already too small. At that time, Solomon held a feast. And all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God. Seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. When Moses dedicated the tabernacle God sent fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. When Solomon now dedicates the temple, God sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. Apparently, God's grand openings always come with fireworks, evidently. But as I mentioned last week, God is at work in the world today building a temple for himself. A spiritual house. We call it his church. He is fitting you and I. He's fitting us together as the temple of God. And guess what? On the day the church opened, on the church's grand opening, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, what did God do? as he did with the tabernacle, as he did with Solomon's temple, he likewise sent fire down from heaven. You could see little flickers of fire hovering over the heads of the 120 that were assembled in the upper room. Again, God sent fire down on the sacrifices to dedicate his new temple. And yet, this time, it wasn't fire sent down to consume dead sacrifices but it was fire sent to consume living sacrifices. You and me, we need to present our bodies as living sacrifices unto God. He sets us on fire, not to be carcasses, but to be witnesses. You and I need to offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice and then be filled with the Holy Spirit and set on fire, consumed with the power of God. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 2, God paid Solomon a visit in a dream. You remember it. He granted Solomon wisdom. Now in chapter 9, God comes to Solomon again, and this time he encourages him to use the wisdom he's been given. This visitation occurs after Solomon has been king now for two decades. God sort of comes to him in in midterm and provides a warning. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your publication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built, to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Here there is cooperation between man and God. Notice what happens here. Man does his part and God does his part. Now, man's part is he's built, that Solomon has built this temple. That's man's part. But now God has come and he's consecrated it and he's filled it with his presence. That's God's part. And whenever you have a work of God, there's always man's part and God's part. It's been said, God won't do man's part and man can't do God's part. But it takes both man and God cooperating and working together. Here Solomon builds the building, a temple, but it's now up to God to make this temple holy. F.B. Meyer writes this, Man builds, God hallows. The cooperation between man and God pervades all life, Man performs the outward and mechanical, God the inward and spiritual. We must be careful to do our part with reverence and godly fear, remembering that God must work in realms we cannot touch and to issues we cannot reach before our poor exertions can avail. There there is much that we can't do, but we need to take care of the little bit of task that God has given us to do and then God will do those miracles that are beyond our reach. Well, verse four tells us, now if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever as I promised David your father saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. The length of this dynasty would be up to the obedience of the kings. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Hey, the temple will honor God One way or the other, either people will see it standing and they will praise God for his glory or they will see it in ruins because of the king's sin and they will marvel at God's judgment. But either way, God is going to get the glory. People are going to come and see his glory manifested in this place either through greatness or through ruin. Verse 10 Now, it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. That king Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother. And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day. The word Kabul means worthless or good for nothing. he given me just some good-for-nothing cities. And then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. <laughs> Pretty good price for some good-for-nothing cities. He was disappointed with his cities, but evidently he still paid for them. Verse 15. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo or the fortress, and the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Now these were the three major cities that controlled the trade routes throughout the region. Hazor was about three miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It controlled the Via Maris, or the way of the sea, the road that ran uh, along the Mediterranean coast, from Egypt to Damascus, it cut through the Valley of Jezreel and then up by the Sea of Galilee and then on up toward Damascus. Megiddo controlled the pass that linked the coastal plain to the Galilee, and then Gazir set on the road—a different road that linked the land of the Philistines to the city of Jerusalem. Solomon built all three of these fortress cities, and the reason was they all set at major crossroads and. It enabled Solomon to control the trade that went back and forth among the region. Now Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and had taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And so Solomon evidently received the city as a wedding gift. And Solomon built Gezer, lower Beth-horin, Ba'leth, and Tadmor in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. Now all the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely. From these, Solomon raised forced labor, as it is to this day. The leftover Canaanites, they were used as slave labor to build Solomon's projects. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced labor because they were men of servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. Others were chief officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Melo. Now three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense with them on the altar, which was before the Lord. And those three times were probably the three major feasts when all the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem, the Passover uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and then the Feast of Pentecost. And so he finished the temple. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezean Gebir, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Solomon built an Israeli navy. And they were docked in one of the most beautiful places on the planet, Eloth or Eloth. Today there's a modern Israeli resort. In the city of Elat, down on the Red Sea, and then Hiram, one of these years when we go to Israel, I'm, I want to stop in Elat. surely there's got to be some biblical significance. Wouldn't it be great to go down to this place and see where Solomon docked his navy? Wouldn't it that when you see those surfboards in the beach, wouldn't it be, just wouldn't it be so beneficial to go down just to see where Solomon docked his navy? Would't that be a, a spiritual experience there? Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. The Phoenicians, you remember, they were were the world-famous sailors, the sailors of antiquity. And so Hiram sent down his naval experts to launch Solomon's navy. And they went to Ophir and acquired 400 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. A talent, remember, weighed between 70 and 100 pounds. So on the low side, 420 talents would have been about 29,000 pounds of gold. At $400 an ounce? (laughs) well, You do the math. Now, we're not sure the location of Ophir, perhaps Arabia, maybe on the eastern coast of Africa, maybe even India. We're not sure. But the fact that Solomon was willing to build bridges of trade to such faraway destinations shows his industriousness, showed his pioneering spirit. Quite a guy. Chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, an entourage, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. Sheba today is the country of Yemen on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And I'm sure it created quite a stir, quite a buzz in Jerusalem when this large and exotic caravan pulled into town. Verse 2, when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And also remember verse 1, she came to test him with hard questions. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. Now these wisdoms of war, war wisdom episodes, these were common in ancient times. They were specifically common in oriental courts, these sort of cerebral showdowns. One wise man would come to the court and he would try to trick another wise man and they would sort of match wits one with the other. The queen of Sheba had heard of Solomon's great wisdom. He was a challenge and some women, you know, they like a challenge. And so she came a long way. She came 1,500 miles to match wits with King Solomon. According to verse 3, he got the best of her every time. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, we studied that last week, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. In other words, all of his wealth took her breath away. Now this was a queen, mind you. She was familiar with treasure and with Heba was a wealthy land in its own right but her finest possessions paled in comparison to those of Solomon. She marvels in verse 6. Then she said to the king, "It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which i heard happy are your men and happier these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom the half was not told me she says and notice verse nine here's a vitally important point the queen of sheba credits solomon's greatness to his god isn't this what solomon had prayed earlier Lord, when the Gentiles, when they see the glory of the temple and when they come to this place to seek you, will they know that you are the true God and hear his prayers being answered? Here is Old Testament evangelism at work. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. God has so blessed Israel that there is only one conclusion that can be drawn by the queen of Sheba, and that is that Israel's God is the one true God. And if Israel had continued to walk in God's ways, this would have been God's plan of evangelism throughout the Old Testament. Verse 10, "'Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, "'spices in great quantity, and precious stones.' There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. There she is, the original spice girl. Of course, Arabia was known for its spices. Also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almug wood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the almug wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house also harps and stringed instruments for singers. Almog wood was probably a sandal wood. It's a red wood. It's very hard and very heavy. It's perfect for musical instruments. It would have resonance to it when you when you played a Almagwood guitar. There never again came such Almug wood, nor has the like been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now it's interesting we're told. Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired. Legend has it, legend that she also asked Solomon for a son, and he obliged. And the queen named their son Menelik, and he became the ancestor of all future Ethiopian kings. In fact, Menelik's dynasty lasted nearly 3,000 years until 1974 when Hali Selassie, who claimed to be a direct descendant of King Solomon, by the way, was deposed by a communist coup. Selassie went by the name the Lion of Judah. And to this day, Ethiopian Jews, who are black-skinned, black-skinned Jews, they're known as Falasha Jews. They all go back to this legend of King Menelik. There is an Ethiopian book. It's called the Kibrat Nagast or the glory of the kings. And one of the excerpts quotes the conversation of the Queen of Sheba, or her name in the book, Queen Makeda. When she beholds Solomon's wisdom, she concludes, from this moment, I will not worship the sun, but will worship the creator of the sun, the God of Israel. In the Kibra Nagast, we also hear the story of Menilek, Apparently, he was raised in Jerusalem in Solomon's court until the age of 25 when his mother died. He had to return to rule in her place. His father knew that he would be 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem and that he would live so far away that he couldn't come back to Israel to worship at the temple. And so Solomon made for him a replica of the ark that he could take home with him so that he could worship Jehovah there in Ethiopia. Menelek, though, an astute son, noticed the growing apostasy of Solomon, how that he was beginning to turn from the true God to idols, the idols that had been worshipped by his pagan wives. And Menelek began to worry about the safety of the ark. And so, according to the legend, with the help of a few priests, he took the real ark with him to Ethiopia, and he left the replica in the temple. And this has led some folks to believe that the ark resides today in Ethiopia. There's only one problem with the theory, and that's a verse of Scripture. 2 Chronicles 35 verse 3 tells us that when King Josiah came to the throne, he returned the ark to the temple. Was it the real ark or was it this replica ark? Well, that's probably more than you really wanted to know. But here's what we do know for sure. Jesus didn't mention the queen of Sheba. He mentioned her visit in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. In fact, Jesus used her as an example to the hard-hearted Pharisees. Remember what Jesus told them? He said, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater Then Solomon is here. Notice Jesus refers to himself as the greater of Solomon. The queen of Sheba so admired Solomon's wisdom, she tries to sit at his feet. And yet Jesus was far wiser than Solomon. And he came to them. They didn't have to come to him. And yet the Pharisees still refused to listen to Jesus. And thus Jesus says that the queen of the south will rise up on the day of judgment and will condemn the Jews. Who had rejected Jesus. Verse 14 provides an intriguing fact. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. 666. Six, six. Solomon's yearly salary was 666 talents of gold. Obviously, that's a lot of gold. 23 tons worth of gold was his yearly salary. What's so intriguing about this is the association of Solomon with this number, 666. You remember it from Revelation chapter 13 verse 18. For there we're told that the number of the Antichrist, that end time ruler who revolts against Jesus Christ, his number will be six. Six, six. Now if you jump ahead to verses 19 and 20 and you look at Solomon's throne, his throne is a sight to behold. It was made of ivory, overlaid with gold. But when you approach the throne of Solomon, here's what you saw. Six, six, six. For there were six lions on the left side, there were six steps in the middle, And there were six lions on the right side. From right to left or left to right, six, six, six. And this all appears before Solomon's backsliding. Here's what we're about to see. We're about to see that Solomon was a good apple that went bad. Solomon takes a terrible spiritual fall. Solomon has the dubious distinction of being the culprit who first introduced idolatry to Israel. And because of this, Solomon is the perfect type of the Antichrist or the one whose number is 666. You remember, David was a man of war. Thus, he couldn't build the temple. Solomon was a man of peace and a temple builder. And this is how the Antichrist will start out. He'll make a covenant with Israel, a peace treaty, and he will offer to help Israel rebuild her temple. People from all over the world journey to Jerusalem to marvel at Solomon's wisdom. The Antichrist will likewise impress the world with his wisdom. Solomon was initially a good man, but he ended up falling into idolatry and bringing it home to Israel. And the Antichrist will likewise initiate idolatry in the temple there in Israel, in Jerusalem. Solomon showed king business prowess and amassed great wealth. We learn in Revelation 18, the Antichrist does the same. There are so many parallels between Solomon and the Antichrist, including this number, 6-6. Six, six. Interesting to study this. Now Solomon's yearly salary was 666 talents of gold, verse 15 Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, and from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. A mina was about two pounds, so... Each shield weighed about six pounds. The cost would have been $40,000 each. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. Glorious king needs a glorious throne, fitting of his stature and his wealth and his power. And let me suggest that this throne was not only made with gold and with ivory, but it also contained a lot of pride. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. Again, look at the throne, and you saw six, six, six. The Antichrist will also be lion from his throne. You get that, lying from his throne? Well, Solomon's wealth is summed up in verse 23. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, the Bill Gates of his day. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. A silver set? How cheap. Only gold was good enough for Solomon. Silver was the equivalent of paper cups to Solomon. Verse 22 For the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. Solomon loved to have these exotic pets around the palace. He had his own zoo, these apes and monkeys. And so King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities. And with the king in Jerusalem, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know how common stones are in Jerusalem. I mean, it is a rocky place. And he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores which are in the low land. Verse 28, also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Cavay. The king's merchants brought them in at the current price now remember this was a violation of deuteronomy chapter 17 and we're going to talk about this again next week but the king was not allowed to accumulate three things remember what they were women solomon broke that one gold oh boy he broke that and horses were the third thing and he broke all three But I want you to notice this. Though the king is not allowed to accumulate horses, Solomon has an excuse. Notice this. He's not using the horses for himself. Evidently, he was acting as a middleman, and he was buying the horses, and then he was selling them. So, Oh, I'm not accumulating horses. I'm just selling them to somebody else. I'm just making a buck. Verse 29. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150, and thus through their agents they exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. But you see what he was doing. He he was buying them and selling them, therefore he had an excuse for himself. Which just goes to show there's a slick rationalization that'll cover up any evil deed. Next week, we're going to look at the terrible downfall of a once glorious king. All right. Everybody understand that? Did I get you totally confused on Menelik and uh, all of that business? There's so many rich treasures in God's Word. Oh, I hope you've discovered the joy of opening up the Scriptures and going through a passage of Scripture and studying it and getting into it and digging and saying, Lord, what kinds of treasures are here that I can discover today? You know, what, what special things do you want to speak to my heart today? What, what You know, when you take God's Word that seriously and you, and you work your way through the Word like that and God starts speaking to your heart, all of a sudden you, you roll over and you say, God's speaking to me. And, and I don't know of anything as exciting as that, is when God speaks to you. But he does it through his word. And so if you never open this book, don't come complaining to me that God's not speaking to you.